Let me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never going to happen. I don't know if this is going to be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a hand of cards and like you have to do the best with what, what you have. Someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better rap. This is No Big Deal, a sales podcast. Welcome back to the No Big Deal podcast with Jack Fox and Jack Nico. And we are really excited to have our next guest, Scott Finden from ReachDesk. Now, Scott joined ReachDesk, which if you haven't heard of, is a B2B SaaS company that allows customers to deliver direct mail to their prospects, accounts, and other customers. And Scott joined that company four years ago as the second SDR, and he's gone on through the ranks, multiple promotions, and is now a senior enterprise account executive. And Scott is going to chat to us today about a deal he has sold this year in a down market, which had a nine-month sales cycle and did almost half of his quarterly target. Thanks for coming on, Scott. Appreciate having me on. Yeah, that was some good energy. Took me aback when you first started, but yeah, it's good to be on. Appreciate <laughs> talking with you both. Obviously, Jack, been in contact for nearly four years now, which is crazy. But yeah, good to meet you as well. Jack is, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. Top man, is there anything you'd add to that, Scott, that we missed? Any other accolades or any other badges that you have that we've missed? Yeah, I mean, I just joined the company very, very early. It was very scrappy in the early days. We barely had a company. We didn't have an office. You know, the platform is very, like, basic and it's, like, rudimentary form. And, yeah, we just went for a crazy hyper-growth journey for the first six months. Then COVID hit. And so we went remote and there was literally, like, 10 people in the company. So it was very risky. Like, we didn't think things were going to go well. Managed to figure a way to, like, send through to people physically at home and then found a bit of a niche as a result because everybody, like, lost events and lost other ways to contact people and so, so gifting was like a great angle for people to go through we signed like companies like sales loft and all these crazy brands when we were like literally like 10 employees so and that was crazy and i just was able to ride that wave promoted into the sdr well from sdr to, to bd no sorry to a sorry beginning of 2021 which was like a year and a half in and then been in a role since then for like two and a half years so yeah crazy kind of rocket ship journey obviously been difficult the last i'd say nine to 12 months especially but yeah been a fun ride so far and long may it continue i'll ask you a quick one as well this isn't to do with the deal perhaps it is but what was the real compelling reason that you joined reach desk of all the businesses that you could have joined it was kind of the exposure to the co-founders that was the main selling point for me so i, I was working at another company botify which is like a french seo company and i was in the london office which was the satellite office so there was new york and paris was where all the big boys were and where all the leadership sat and i was in a kind of small satellite office where there's only a couple other BDRs and like CSMs. So I was doing well and hit my target and stuff like that, but I just wasn't, I didn't have that senior leadership exposure. So that was the main thing. It was, you know, I got introduced to Alex really coincidentally by somebody who'd interviewed me prior to joining that first company. And he just said, Hey, like, I really loved meeting you previously. He, I got written this really long, very personalized recruitment, like prospecting message, which I think is very rare. I've never had one since, but it was very, very personalized. Like, Hey, I like this about you. I thought you were great for this reason. Like it was very, very 
you know, personal, which was, which was great. And then he said, Hey, like I've, you know, I'm in contact with this co-founder. Would you like a chance to speak with him? And then I met with Alex. We went for a couple of beers. He kind of sold me the dream, which he likes to like, <laughs> like joke about now kind of lubricated with a couple of beers, I think probably helped. But yeah, he showed me the first version of reach desk. And I was like, damn, like I'm a BDR and I want this. So that was kind of the main thing for me as well was I actually see the value in this tool. So the senior leadership exposure, and then I saw the potential of the platform and it just seemed like a risk worth taking. And I think it has been so far. So. And going back to the deal, like you sold it to a big fintech company and you told me and Jack, they, on their buying process, were very process driven. Like when you said that to us before we started recording, like what did you mean? What were they like as buyers? Yeah, it was, I think, quite typical of like enterprise companies where there is a serious layer of like hierarchy. They don't just kind of make decisions like willy nilly or sign off, you know, tens of thousands in terms of purchases without like a really thorough evaluation. So the way I got into the business was through, uh, you know, a, a previous customer who reached out to me who was new in the role, but fairly soon into the the conversations, once I kind of, once I kind of established a bit of a business case with the marketing team who were like our core audience, I was fairly swiftly introduced to procurement. And from that point on, the procurement contact became that main point of contact. And they were kind of insistent that they were always involved in every communication. And there was a point kind of like two thirds of the way through the deal where I was like, making progress on the security side of things and it felt like we were nearing the sign-off point and I hadn't spoken to marketing for like a couple of months or maybe more because it was just you know running through that course of, of doing the security review and I reached back out to marketing and then when the procurement guy found out I kind of got a bit of a slap on the wrist to say please don't reach out to anybody without me involved in the conversation so that was just like kind of an example of the level of process that they wanted me to abide by and kind of be respectful of so I from that point obviously made sure I, I was but yeah it was just a very thorough and systematic review where we had to kind of put together a very detailed like business case and take it to the capital committee which was like their c-suite budget approval process which was like a monthly cadence so a lot of the things I think with these enterprise companies they either have like certain cadences either like the risk team will review everything once a week or the, you know, the C-suite review once a month, whatever. So driving timelines and trying to create urgency, I find is a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Just because different timelines and different processes, they kind of just put in place. I think they're also just a bit more strict with the different <laughs> reviews. Certain organizations you can probably just get through with no red line or maybe one or two bits of red line on the, on the, on the T's and C's. Whereas a company like this is, yeah, it was a three month review of like, the security processes we had to build a whole part of the back end to satisfy like this main request which they had so yeah various different ways but it is yeah pretty thorough in terms of that procurement process and this point of contact that you had there was it frustrating having to only speak to this one person who you weren't necessarily initially wanting to sell a product so you're not want to sell reach desk to procurement are you no I, yeah I, I kind of i see where you're coming from because i've been in the position where it has been frustrating but i think in this scenario they were actually quite a great contact. They they were generally very complimentary. And, you know, they, they said pretty early on, like, hey, you know, we've looked at other tools and we're really confident that you are the right fit for us. So they were, he was very explicit in outlining that, like, reach Desk are the partner for us. It's just a matter of us, like, working together. So for that reason, it wasn't a hindrance. If anything, it was somebody who was actually a very valuable asset for me in like, mm. navigating their internal landscape and what needed to happen. And I've had that once or twice with procurement where they've actually been like a big, like almost like a secondary champion. Like they don't actually care about the use case, but they are targeted on like bringing you in or they, you know, they do seem to have some sort of like buying or like 
stake in the game of like getting this in and getting it in in good time. So I found in this scenario, he was actually very, very helpful. And other than like kind of telling me off for like reaching out uh, to one of the marketing team without MCC'd in because of the visibility idea, he was generally, you know, nothing but kind of positive. So he helped drive the, drive the deal and helped me navigate everything and introduced me to the right people. So he was ticking a lot of the boxes of like what you hope for from a champion. When the decision process is like, you, we have so many stakeholders involved, everyone has their own priority priorities and you're trying to manage that how how did you visualize that when going into each call without showing you know just a list of tasks that each that you'd completed or you needed to complete i think the kind of decision process stuff was kept very much with the procurement contact so uh, when it when it comes to the more like processy side of the deal i have a mutual launch plan which obviously i think a lot of people are familiar with mine's pretty simple just a couple of slides. And the way I visualize it is I'll just have the sign-off process, the legal process, the security, and then the signature. And I just try and keep it boiled down to those four kind of fundamental elements. Because I think even, even with the more complex like buying processes, it's rare that it deviates beyond those kind of four main like columns in my experience. Sometimes it can be a bit complex and maybe one part gets triggered before another, whatever. So the, yeah, so I was I was breaking it down to those four things. So like, who do we need to get the sign off from? Like, what do they need to see? What's the process? Of, is it like an internal procurement like system, or is it just like a tick box exercise? And then the legal side as well. Like, who does it go to? Who does it get allocated to? Like within the legal team, how long can we anticipate for like the first round of red line? How long does it typically take for like the full legal review in your experience? And then security, similar sort of thing. Like, who does this get assigned to? Do we need to do an onboarding questionnaire? What other tick box exercise do we need to go through? And then signatory, like who's actually going to be able to sign this? When are they available? Are they expecting it across their desk? So those are the kind of ways I try and break it down. The wider did, you, did you have that process? Like, did you all those questions that you just asked there? You just asked them like they're just common sense. Yeah. <laughs> Loads of people don't do that. Did yeah. you have those questions ready to go and you asked them all in a format with the procurement guy or your point of contact? Or or were these things that just kind of came up well along? Or is this someone else's process that you've carbon copied? and stolen I'm trying to recall now because it's been so long that i've used it <laughs> i can't remember the origin but yeah i don't know i i i often create like content internally like because we're kind of it's very scrappy it's very startupy so <laughs> sometimes the processes get formalized start with just a couple of slides that we've just chucked together and then yeah. it comes a little bit so yeah that whenever i i always use those slides whenever i get to the point of like presenting a proposal and getting that kind of verbal buy-in i'm generally fairly presumptive with it like when i get to the end of the proposal i'll be like great like what I'll look to do now is just map out some of the more processy like side of things. And then I'll just like pull up the slide on the screen and then mm -hmm. just those four bullet points are there with like colons, but there's like nothing typed. And then I'll just ask an open-ended question to like get like, you know, like you heard just there and then kind of type it out while, while I'm sharing my screen, like in a collaborative sort of style with whoever I'm speaking with. So that's kind of what I did in this scenario when I was, when it became clear, like with the procurement guy that, yeah, cool. Like we're in a good position to move forward. And now is the time to start all these bits and bobs then that's what I do, just kind of like share my screen. And I just try and be as like simple with it, like in terms of that structure of like those four columns, but then fairly detail oriented in, in terms of like making sure I don't leave any uncertainty or any stone unturned with like each of the different elements. Like, is there going to be anybody that's on a holiday? Like, are they expecting it across their desk? Because like all those kind of things can like throw you off a week or a couple of weeks, whatever. Do you know um, what? I should have a huge yeah. post-it note on my screen that says, ask them if anyone's on holiday. Do you know mm -hmm. how many times I've been stung by that? I forecasted a deal last month that was supposed to come in yesterday. God bless my reputation. After it didn't, I, I emailed the guy, the contract, and I got his out of office. I'm on paternity leave until the yeah. first week of September. I was like, 
how did I not ask if you weren't going to be in? Like, why did I not think about that? It's such an obvious question that no one ever asked. It makes such common sense to say, who does the security process? Can you give me an introduction? Who does the compliance process? Can you give me an introduction? Is any of these people on holiday? Like, those things are so obvious, but in the heat of the battle or in the heat of the moment, when you think you've been introduced to, like, to use the word from someone else, cat, a mobilizer, which is what sounds as though this procurement guy was for you or girl. It sounds as though this person was a mobilizer. And like, when I get in front of that person, I think, oh my God, they're just going to take care of everything for me. And I, and I find it really hard to like, take a few deep breaths, keep calm and say, this is the process that I go through now. I really like the idea of having a screen share and you like co-collaborate on filling it out like a questionnaire and say, who is, what, what, whose name goes here? Who, wait, how long does it take? That's great. It's fucking great. Yeah. I, I think like the collaborative aspect of it is like key, I think with any deal and like nowadays more than ever, but yeah, especially when you get to the the tail end of the deal, like, the way I kind of view it is like on a scale of like relationship building and kind of project managing the deal, it kind of goes on like a sliding scale. So at the start, I'm very much about like being friendly, open-ended questions, being about building that relationship, getting them talking, opening up the pains and stuff like that. And then second, you know, it's cool. I'll maybe start to get a bit more process in there, like maybe an ROI calculator, stuff like that. And then by the end of the deal, I've stopped being quite so like, like, airy fairy and like friendly and and it's much more about just being a project manager and being like this is what needs to get done this is when it needs to get done by are you going to be able to do this does your bandwidth you know account for it what you know how can i hold you accountable how can you hold me accountable and get much more kind of like shorts to the point and 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 so that kind of thing that kind of like document just helps me do that in a way that doesn't seem like forceful i think so that's the way i kind of view it and yeah it helps me a lot i use the mutual launch plans in probably like three quarters of my deals i think if it's really simple um, and it seems like it really is going to be simple, then I might like take their word for it and just kind of just skip that part. But yeah, more often than not, I'll just pull it up and just gives you both a visual cue, enables you to kind of like question your champion and kind of like poke a few different areas like, oh, is this something that needs to happen? Or but yeah, and one thing you mentioned a moment ago was like, can I have an introduction? I think one one thing I typically try and do as well is be, be that trusted advisor to say, like typically in this position, I'll be introduced into somebody from your legal team. Who is it that will be you'll be able to loop me in with? So it's again a bit more presumptive. And you use the that phrase, which I love so much, you know, typically in this position, or you know, often at this sort of stage, I will be. So you kind of drawing back on the experience of like when I sell to similar companies, this is what happens, as opposed to saying, Can I have an introduction? Because that, you know, they can just say no, or they can just feel a bit more guarded to be like, oh, like Scott is asking me like is there a reason why he's not like a bit more confident or even if just that, if that's subconscious so yeah it just enables you to kind of like take control and be very process orientated but not like forceful so yeah it works well i like one thing that you said there where it was like i'm like really really nice open-ended questions and then jack uses the phrase blood in the water mm-hmm. and then you suddenly you go into your next mode where you probably have learned how to be a serial closer over the previous two and a half years, you know, where you just get the deal done. What what things do you look out for? What are your signals that make you go, okay, great, I'm going to go and move into the really, I'm going to get this deal done? I would say it's more of like a gradual transition, if I'm honest. So like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, just imagine me like going like wide pupils and just like frothing the mouth. Like, <laughs> Not like a rabid animal. <laughs> just like get this over the line the commission yeah the commission wants or something but yeah i think just a great a gradual transition like as the deal progresses and like you know typically uh, you know our sales process isn't overly complex so there's generally going to be like an open 
you know, first call disco demo, second call, maybe into a scoping phase, then a proposal, and then maybe a closing one or two calls. So there's only going to be five or six calls. So it, I'd say like as each call progresses, I'll just kind of gradually transition towards more of that like project manager, as opposed to that more like consultative, like open, open-ended questioning type persona. Yeah. And I think I kind of like structure my calls accordingly as well. What kind of things do I look for? Like, I think it's just a, a real sense that it's like a real opportunity. Like, do I have a real champion? Is there real a clear pain? Is, you know, have I been able to identify the impact? Do they have, have they been introducing me to the right people? Am I multi-threaded in, in the opportunity? Using MedPick is obviously the map to help you understand all those things kind of based on scores and stuff like that. So once I've got those fundamental things in place, probably compelling event, something I'm still trying to work on, which is always a bit weak for me, strong, compelling event, then, then I'm in the position where it's like, cool, I've got my fundamentals of the deals locked in. Now I just need to cover like paper process, maybe decision process in a bit more detail. So yeah, so I think once I've got those fundamentals of the the deal understood, and f- for me, I use MedPick and we score each one on a scale of one to four. So as long as I've got like at least twos, but hopefully like threes, I rarely give myself a four. So yeah, looking for threes in like those main areas of MedPick, that's kind of what what I go off. And that's how I try and structure each call before I go into each each call. I look at my MedPick scores. I think like, where's weak? Where do I have nothing? And then I'll set that in the agenda so i'll say hey like you know for the purpose of today's call looking to do a recap of last time these couple of key things which are like value adds for them whatever it is depending on the deal and then you know towards the end of the call there's a couple of more processy type questions i'd like to ask just to kind of cover bases on my side anything else you'd like to cover so i often like include that as like part of the the, the agenda sorry with calls and it kind of just gives people a heads up that i'm going to be asking a couple of more straight shooting questions and that's me like drip feeding that into the op and then again like by the end that's probably like the main pur- purpose of the call. And it'll just be like, cool, Jack, right. This is when he's happened, blah, blah, blah. And then, so, yeah. That's a lovely way of baking medic into your agenda. Yeah, I was going to say well the done. same thing. That's seriously fucking good operating model there. I, I was going to say, I've always heard this thing about on most calls, you've got like a secondary, a primary agenda and a secondary agenda. The primary agenda is often the customer's agenda. So they want to see a call so they can see, what the back end looks like or what the API integration looks like or what your onboarding process looks like. And the secondary agenda is what you need, which is in this case, what you just said there, like, you know, I need to know a bit more about the paper process or I need to understand a little bit more about your compelling event. Why are you doing this now? And it, everybody on your side has to know about that as well, because there might not be a natural moment for you to come up in the call and say, Hey, by the way, just to butt in there while you're talking about price, can you just quickly tell me about security? Cause it just doesn't sound right. So yeah. And, I, and I'm not sure how your, business operates but did you because you're sound like a very process orientated person and very detail orientated how are you communicating that to everybody else who's coming in on the deal from your side i mean whenever i loop anybody in to support i I just try and give them a really clear instruction of instruction of what i expect from them on the call when i'm going to give them the microphone uh you know i try and keep control as much as i can in 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 a non-controlling way but i try and just give it enough structure so that when I, yeah, when I bring people in, they're there to do a specific part. So like, again, like hypothetically, I'll, you know, do, do that agenda, you know, I'll probably typically start with a couple of open-ended questions because I don't want to just go into something. So I'll be like, Oh, Mr. And Mrs. Prospect, like, what is it about this you're really looking to achieve? Like, why is this going to be key for you? And if anything, I'm just kind of like informing whoever I'm bringing to the call with the answers to those questions as they're there live on the call so mm. that they kind of like use the words, you know, mirror back to them almost. Yeah, I got it. And, uh, you know, in the head up to the call, I'll be like, sales engineer hypothetically oh yeah gonna give you 10 minutes so around, around about 10 past once i've done the you know the the agenda and those couple of questions gonna pass it over to you and then i expect it back around about 20 past is that cool so i think like time management within deals is probably an underrated skill if you've only got 30 minutes especially but even if you've got 45 or an hour i think making sure that you've always got 
plenty of time to ask those couple of questions and set next steps without rushing. I think that's a really key key skill that yeah probably gets overlooked a little bit. So yeah, strict strict management on deals and nice bit of structure. I let many many calls run. I let the engineer run, or especially if they're doing like some beautiful demo. I'm like, you carry on, man. <laughs> you run it all the way down. Yeah. The clock down. And I think as well on that point, Scott, when I'm thinking back of potentially ways that I've done that really well or and ways, you know, that haven't gone well is during the demo, I've almost kept it as a Q&A. So I've been able to be sidetracked by maybe end user questions or something like that, rather than what I've seen previously worked really well is, hey, I'm going to write that question down and we're going to answer it at the end. And you almost let the demo flow for that 15 minutes where you can be really laser focused rather than getting bogged down and then you end up skipping around to places. So yeah, I like that. I saw Will do this once on a deal. Jack, Will's my my boss, Scott. He waited, someone asked a question. He's like, let me write that down. I'm going to answer that at the end and used it to get another meeting with the person. It was very smooth. I mean, it's not rocket science, but it worked so well. The woman on the call was like, let's take another call afterwards and we can talk through it. He was like, bingo, just got another hour, which is just like, it's great. Scott, was there anything in this deal we typically find that somebody who closes a big deal like this typically does something pretty well in the deal? Like one moment or one play or one move that managed to just bring this thing to life and, and, and managed to move it forward towards either closing or managed to make it into the opportunity size that it was. Is there anything that you upon reflection are looking back on thinking that moment there made this deal a serious success or made it as big as it was? That's a good question. I, I think I got a little bit lucky with like the deal size in this scenario. It was just to do with like the, the scale of the users. It was kind of unusually high. We might usually add like five to 10 users. If it was a big account, it might be like 50 and they wanted like 200 out the door. So that was the reason why it was quite so high. So I, I'm trying to think of a clever way to try and take credit for that, but I don't know if there is. So yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> it was kind of a little bit blind luck, but at the same time, I think probably the, the the one thing that I the reason why I got this opportunity was because I had have a good network and like that's something I've it's not like it's not a chance that I've you know I've got a lot of people in my network who are in my target audience who are open to reaching out to me. It's not happened as much this year. This was again probably against the kind of runner play, but generally I do have people reaching out to me and saying, "Hey Scott, like you know I'm thinking about gifting now. Like can we have a conversation?" And half the time, like if it's if I do have any of myself, gens, that's half the time that's how it's opened up now i'm having to be a bit more proactive and i'm (laughs) hitting the phones a lot more as pipeline's been a bit thinner this year but i think that that network building piece is is probably an honest answer to like why why i got this opportunity versus anyone else in the team like when i joined reach desk i remember i had about a thousand connections and now i've got over six and a half and so in like four years i've been adding like over five thousand people to my network and they're all like senior sales and marketers within b2b tech and I try and, you know, systematically engage with people on LinkedIn. So I'm always like practically liking people's um, posts and commenting and stuff like that. And trying to post, I don't post loads. I don't probably post as quite as much as you two guys, to be fair, but I probably post more than most sales reps at Reach Desk. And, uh, you know, I try and keep it like fun and fresh and like try different things. And sometimes they get like thousands or tens of thousands of impressions and stuff like that. So that, that's led to this opportunity and it's led to like, you know, several other like decent sized opportunities in the past, which, so I think that's maybe a bit of a unique selling point for me is the fact I'm able to like lean on that network a little bit. And again, it's like not by chance that it's there. It's it's kind of through (laughs) systematically adding probably a hundred people on LinkedIn every day for like every week, probably for like four years. Yeah. Made your own luck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that, mate. I've noticed the same thing with Jack, Jack and another rep at sales off 
Charlotte Johnson have always got more pipeline than everybody else. They've always got better networks than everybody else. And that's not chance. Like that's through hard work and consistency. And you like, as the famous Maurice says, you can't just sit on the sidelines. You have to roll the dice. Play. Yeah, you have to roll the dice. Yeah, the, the dice isn't going to roll itself. Oh, God, the dice. Is- and so I would 100% take credit for that. So don't be and play down that whatsoever. I'm on your side for that one. Yeah. In conclusion, I think when we wrap this up, like what was one thing you learned in this deal where you now do in every one of your deals? I think bringing more people into the deals. I think it's something I used to do a lot more like when I was in my first year as an AE because I didn't feel like that confident or comfortable on the deals. I felt like I needed somebody. So often it was like the head of sales or another like senior AE who was kind of like shadowing. And I would, especially in the first probably nine months, I was like, every call, I'd be like, anything to add, like James or whatever. And then he would like wrap up the call basically for me. It was me kind of just going for that learning process. But then I feel like during my second year, like once I hit a bit of a flow, I started to feel a bit confident and maybe too confident or too comfortable to the point where I was like, oh, I've got this kind of thing. Like, I don't need to like loop too many people in. Like, let me just keep, keep like, keep on top of everything myself. And, you know, whereas in this deal, I did have to loop a lot of people in, like from like our CTO to like the technical team through like we had internal like ABM specialists involved and like sales engineers and stuff like that. And yeah, I think I was saying to you guys before we started recording, like I reach out to a lot of people in general on LinkedIn, but including some enterprise AEs. And a lot of what they talk to me is, is once you get to big enterprise selling where it's million dollar deals plus, a lot of it is just about orchestration and managing like stakeholders. So that's something I'm kind of conscious of now and trying to like, you know, practically develop as a skill. So that's something I had to do quite a lot in this opportunity. Again, it was just because it was kind of forced on me through the requests that they had on their side of things. But now I think me individually, I think us as a company as well, we're kind of proactively thinking about the importance of selling as a team this year. So trying to open up different channels of communication internally to all the different teams involved, whether it's even like CSMs, you know, the C-suite, our CFO, like, you know, and the event we were at the other day, Jack with the A's of London, I can't remember the name of the A, but he was talking about man marking his you know leadership team with theirs so that was an idea which i brought back internally where like you know he's lining up his cfo with theirs his vp of engineering with their cto and then one of his two ceos with the match personality type with their ceo like going to that level of granularity wasn't something i was kind of had thought about before so trying to bring that a bit more into my game and thinking about cool like who can i loop in because i think again now more than ever <laughs> we can't just carry these deals single-handedly. We haven't got momentum of the market like on our side. So we need to be kind of, you know, taking every, covering every base basically. So selling as a team. So that's something that, yeah, I think happened in this deal. That's something I'm trying to think about a lot more. And shout out for that. That was that was a no big deal alumni, Ian Hayes. With- <laughs> Do you know what? I can't resonate more with that. Like, I really, I happened to me about a year ago and now I can't, and I can't, un, I wouldn't go into a deal now about bringing in, like, here's your implementation consultant. Can I meet your CRM admin on your side? Or here's our uh, customer success manager. Can I meet your project manager on your side? Or, And to the point now where I'm like, who is that person? And they'll be like, oh, you know, so-and-so De Silva. I'm like, okay, just check where they're from. They're Spanish. I'm like, okay, cool. I need to go and find a Spanish person on our side who's going to be the customer success manager. Or wh- who is this person? I'm like, oh, they're from Yorkshire. I'm like, okay, cool. I need to go and make sure somebody on this side is from Yorkshire. Just like n- not always geographical, but you know what I mean? I'm like making sure that I'm getting something they can build rapport on instantly and they can just be drawn together on. And I think once you've done that once and you see the impact it has, people emotionally gravitate towards other people who are similar to them, who are from the same place, even just down to things. It's like, 
two blokes you might just get on with each other or or two women of the same age who have you know recently had kids so that happened here is like one of our sales reps is like oh i just got really lucky she also is pregnant about to have a child as well and i thought oh my god like you two are instantly going to have so much more rapport because you've got something in common and now ride or die with that strategy like it makes such a difference so yeah man i resonate with that a lot yeah and even like just the speaking in the same language because i think when you're trying to talk to somebody who's like head of risk head of compliance whatever like getting the cto to speak in their language i think they're gonna just appreciate that much more than yeah yeah. there is probably just some pesky sales guy who they know is just trying to get a deal over the line i think you know certain personas kind of see through that stuff a little bit more so just having someone that can speak in their own language from like a, a role perspective as well just helps as well as like we said like with personalities and traits geographic whatever quite literally that i had a deal once and the guy said to me can you bring somebody on from your finance team to pitch this to my cfo because he's not going to like you great talking Cheers, mate. thanks mate. he was he was dutch so he didn't give a shit about being direct <laughs> well let's hit a few questions to wrap it up if that's all right scott we've got a few yep. like round off questions i think jack probably already asked one but one of the questions that we like to ask is like what sales skill and it may even been may have surfaced in this deal as well but what sales skill makes you greater sales what skill do you have or what attribute do you have that makes you great at sales? Uh, I think I think probably the main thing that I think is unique to me specifically is probably being open-minded to feedback and quite self-reflective. So like something like, like kind of preach by is doing a lot of deal forensic deal, like close loss deal reviews. So I like look, look back at my deals, I get in like a spreadsheet format and I look at the makeup of each of the deals I've lost in a given quarter and I break it down into like number of people I had in the deal, number of meetings I had, the MedPick score, what was missing from MedPick, a couple other things as well, which I think I'm forgetting. And I'll just like run through that with a whole, you know, it might be like 30 deals or more. And then from that, there'll be some, a few key deals that I'll, I'll highlight that I know I probably could have won. If I'd played this better, I, I would have won it, I should have won it. And then I just try and make learnings from that. And I've done that like quite systematically since going as an A, and I did it heavily like in the first year. So what that enabled me to do is just like eradicate a lot of the rookie errors and rookie mistakes and just like stuff that I should be doing, just the basics, the fundamentals of like multi-threading, for example, or like just like the medpick scores again, like is there certain things I'm always missing? And like if, if someone gives me feedback on like a call, like I'm so open to it. Like I, I don't think I take offense when people give me feedback. I think that's something that I see in some people sometimes there might be like a bit of resistance or they might try and justify a certain behavior, a certain reason why they did something, something a certain way when you try and give them feedback. Like, and I don't think that helps. Like, uh, whereas, you know, when I get feedback myself, I'm just like, like really appreciative of it. And I, you know, I don't think I take offense to me. Like, I, you know, I, I like to think I see it for what it is, realize I'm not the finished article and like able to put it into my process moving forward. So I think that's something I think is not that common in like the people I've encountered in sales. Like, maybe obviously lots of people have, but I think I've come into contact with a lot of people that don't have that. And so I think that's one. But I'm also very competitive as well, so I think that helps. I don't like not being at the top of the table, so that's that really drives me on a day-to-day basis. If I know that I'm falling short of the mark or there's someone else up in the bar, that pushes me a lot as well. So I think those two things in combination help a lot. Nice, I like it. And last of all, before we finish, what is your favourite sales memory? I, I got asked this question a couple of weeks ago, and I, had, I was thinking, like, is there something I can give as a different answer? But I think this just tops it. I don't know if it's something special about this occasion. So it was like during COVID, I think it was like mid-summer, just after everyone had like been shell-shocked in those first couple of months and we were able to get a bit of traction as a BDR. So this is before I was even progressing to A, but I just managed to book 10 meetings in a week. And our target at the time, I think it was like 15, but you know, it was just after like a really tough time of like COVID and like the numbers really dropped. 
just like having one of those weeks where like everything clicked, like every answer was like a yes. I was just able to literally get everyone booked in against the backdrop of like obviously the uncertainty of like COVID and everything that's going on. And I just remember just literally having this like feeling of elation, which I got every time I booked a meeting, really. I was pretty much always fist pumping every time I got a meeting, like knee sliding across the, the kitchen or whatever. It's kind of how, <laughs> how I feel after the sales wins, which is half the reason I do it. But yeah, that, that one occasion where it all just came together and I just remember like playing music so loud and just being so, so pumped. And that's what I love about sales. When you have those wins, it just, it feels like deep down, just like so good. So that, that was probably the best I had. And I've had lots of good wins as an A since. And, but for some reason that one was just like, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was decent, man. Everybody resonates with that. Like that is so true. Sitting Also in COVID, remember when you were sitting in your room, doing BD in your room for the first time ever, like making cold calls in your yeah. bedroom or in like your parents' bedroom or something, making cold calls and like booking me and you're like, oh God, this is so <laughs> As in my parents' house, just a tiny little study. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Unless you got anything else to add, Jack, I just want to say, good. Scott, that was class, you, mate. mate. You're obviously a great sales rep.